0: In this week's episode of The Deadliest Files, we interview Gavin Wanganin about winning the Brownlow as a 20-year-old and turning to art after football. Out of midfield, to the of the year! <laughs>
1: Look at that! Wanganin, the excitement machine, listen to the crowd roar. If he kicks this, they'll rip this place down. And they've started to tear the place apart. They declare Gavin Wanganin, the
0: 1993 Brownlow Medal. Joining us for this week's Deadliest Chat is two-time Premiership player, Brownlow medalist, first Indigenous player to play 300 games. I speak, of course, of Gavin Wanganen. Gav, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hey young brother? All right. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thanks for taking the time. You know, when I go through a laundry list of uh, accolades like that, how does it feel when you hear all of those things read out about the things you did on the field?
1: Yeah, now that I'm getting a little bit older, you know, it's sort of... Yeah, you forget, I guess, uh, and maybe that's a good thing too, but, yeah, it's a nice feeling to, to be reminded of, you know, some of the things that you've done in your life, in your footy career. Before we go any further, who's your mob and where are you from? Yeah, my mob are the Gugatha people from the far west coast of South Australia. Also have ties to the Narunga people on the Yorke Peninsula. So, yeah, that's my mob.
0: <laughs> Can you uh, describe what it was like growing up with your family and all that kind of stuff, playing footy and having a kick and doing all those things
1: that kids do? Yeah, look. From a very early age, I guess um, there was always a, a footy around. It might have been the, the nice, perfectly uh, perfect Sharon. It might have been just the, the these little cheap brown footies back in the early <laughs> day. Get them from supermarket. Or whatever they were like a dollar or fifty cents back in the day. That's probably all we could afford. So you're probably a bit young to remember that. But uh, I remember kicking it. The, the bottom of the ball was really hard, so you couldn't kick it barefoot. You know, so. <laughs> But yeah, it was always a footy, a crusty old footy that we'd kick around, all us kids and heap of kids around and relatives and uh, you had to fight for that footy. So <laughs> maybe that's where we learned it in the backyard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who were you pretending to be, you know, when you'd, when you'd snap the impossible goal when, and
1: you commentated
0: in the backyard?
1: Yeah, look, well, growing up, obviously, you know, watching the Cracker the Brothers at North Melbourne, they were... You know, little pocket rockets who are just so talented, and you know, taking on the mighty Victorian players. Um, they were someone I, there were guys who I watched and idolised, and you know, I love Gary Ablett Senior, uh, like probably most people. So he was someone I practiced snapping over the shoulder and all these tricks.
0: But yeah, those guys. Yeah, nice. And then I suppose you ended up growing up playing footy and then coming through Port Adelaide. Who were some of your mentors down there at uh, the Magpies who kind of might have taken your game to the next level before you got drafted?
1: Yeah, look, uh, I mean, growing up in the northern suburbs of Adelaide in Salisbury and playing out there, I guess I just had this real deep determination. My uncles were great country footballers, Indigenous footballers over on the West Coast. And I guess deep down, probably my... My aspirations came from them, watching them win male medals and, uh, yeah, from a very young age. So deep down, I think they had a fair bit to do with that and I just took the footy for probably for various reasons, yeah.
0: (laughs) So when you watched your uncles,
1: I know quite
0: often when you're a kid, you never really believe that you can get to even your uncle's level. So then once you got to there, who was kind of the next and then the next?
1: Yeah, I think it started to happen... In the junior grades around about under 12s, 13s, I got a letter from the Portolaid Magpies Junior Development Program to to go and do the training over the school holidays in the midwinter. So I went and did that. I guess that gave me a bit of confidence to think, oh, okay, wow, this is going to the next level. And once I got into that program, all the other kids, I guess, were at a next, another level. So the standard forced you to improve. So I guess from there, it sort of just progress, then you start seeing every year, you just start seeing how the improvements of others and then you think, well, well, he's looking pretty fit and he's looking all right. Well, I want to look like that too. So being in that environment, that competitive environment, I think was off on you. Were you at the top or the bottom of that kind of pecking order
0: when you first went down to, um, down to Port Adelaide?
1: I, I think I wasn't too bad. I was probably in the middle maybe. Yeah, just, you know, just... In the middle, and maybe just above the middle, and then made some real progress over one pre-season that I did when I was 15, turning 16. I did a pre-season over the summer. I think that was the the changing point because then when I those I started playing those the early games of the following year, I just noticed I was fitter, I was stronger, I yeah, you know, I was faster and more confident. So that was the turning point. That pre-season. So guys, you want to get good early, smash out the pre-seasons. Let's fast forward
0: to uh, 1990 and you guys win the flag, the the Sample flag for uh, the Magpies. Talk us through that because not everyone knows what uh, the SANFL is like and how
1: combative it is. Yeah, well back in those days, so I was a young 16 year old and I was lucky enough to get my SNFL debut That was before the Crows were in or, I mean, the Power were in in 97, but the SNFL was still at its strongest point in 1990. So all the good players were still in South Australia, bar a couple um, who'd gone over Victoria to play in the Bearfield. So it was at its peak and it was a huge thing. It was, you know, playing in front of 15,000 people in my first game at Alberton, Port Adelaide Magpies' home ground, was just an unbelievable thing. And uh, as a young 16-year-old kid, Indigenous kid, who's playing and all my relatives were, like, really excited for me and... Um, yeah, it was just a really amazing time. What did that mean for you to be able to put a smile on all
0: of your relatives' face? And obviously, that's a great year. You end up winning a premiership, but you know you've just touched on you know all your relatives getting around you, Indigenous kid playing league footy. That must have been something special for you.
1: Yeah, it was. They were really proud, and it made me feel really proud too. And there were cousins and who had similar abilities, but for you know various reasons didn't you know get the opportunity. So. I guess in a way they sort of saw a bit of themselves in me and I just felt really proud and I was able to make it happen. And, and you know, and sadly, some of them didn't get that opportunity because of various reasons, which I, um, yeah, which we all know about, which, which is part of life, Yeah.
0: So then, so then you end up going over to the Bombers. You've already achieved premiership success at senior level in, you know, arguably one of the best comps in Australia. Then you come over and start training at Essendon, and then obviously uh, you start your career there. What was that like? A making the move, and then B, you know, with all of these guys who are who are absolute superstars in their own right.
1: Yeah, look, it was it definitely got up to another level because whilst the was a great football league. In Victoria, it's a bigger population, so it was it was going up into the big league. I guess that's how I saw it. And the AFL had probably truly become the AFL with the with the Crows coming in that year, ninety one. And yeah, I was I was seventeen. I remember rocking up to my first training session, and James Heard was there, this little blonde kid, skinny as a run. And uh, yeah, so it was. And you know, we we're just having a crack at the big one. And one thing I did notice that. I was so much skinnier than these other big bulls, you know, running around and I noticed the competitiveness of the training uh, over the preseason was up another level too. So leading Adelaide wasn't too hard a decision for me to lead because I'd go anywhere to play footy in the big league. So I was excited to get there.
0: Who were the people who took you under your under
1: their wing? Longy took me in under his wing straight away. So that was pretty awesome and I remember spending Did you have a choice? <laughs> no, probably not really, but uh I spent a lot of time at his house early days playing backyard cricket and get to know Longy and the character that he is, you know, he's just one of the funniest, driest guys. He's got a dry humour that just, he's just so funny. So I built, you know, built up a pretty strong bond with Longy and then Derek Kickett was there as well and had a lot of other Indigenous boys. Um, Dale Kickett was there. There was um, Willie Dick from Western Australia. There was um, Lachlan Ross and a couple of others that came from the system. So Kevin Sheedy was, you know, a pioneer and, bringing huge numbers of Indigenous players into the Essendon Footy Club through that time, which was um, awesome. Certainly made me feel a lot more at home having the boys around just from, you know, a similar background. What was it like having Kevin Sheedy
0: there when he was so far ahead of his time from nurturing Indigenous talent but also
1: understanding kind of a bit more of the cultural stuff? Yeah, Sheedy was definitely uh, ahead of his time and he was just an unbelievable advocate, I guess, in a way, in terms of bringing those players into the and Footy Club. The, the number of Indigenous players, I think there might have been six at that particular time. He knew the talent that the Indigenous boys had. He had that nurturing in him. It was just in him, and he brought that across to the Indigenous boys and wanted to nurture them and to, to bring them in and give them an opportunity because he knew what could come of it. Yeah. You know, look what has come of it today, I mean. So yeah. now we're at 93, you have one of the years out
0: of the box, not just personally, but also from a team perspective. You're 20 years old, you've already won an SANFL flag, you've now, you've now won an AFL flag and a Brownlow medal. What's it like, um, and, and then not only that, you're the first Indigenous man to win a Brownlow medal.
1: Number four, the reigning Brownlow medalist, Gavin Wingame.
0: What's it like dealing
1: with that level of success at such a young age? It was a very interesting year. It really was. Um, because you're so young, I don't think you actually absorb it. That makes sense. You don't really absorb it. You understand what you've achieved later on in life, like even like now. I think you know, in my early 40s, I fully appreciate what it was. At the time, I didn't. So I was just going along with the ride, you know. Um, I wasn't soaking too much in at all. It was, uh, I was just enjoying the ride and sometimes when you're a young fella playing footy, young indigenous fella too, you're I'm a simple guy, you know, I just do the simple things and um, I just, I was just enjoying the ride. So it was wonderful to obviously win that Brownlow and uh, win a premiership in 93 and with the Mighty Bombers, it was, you know, we're the Baby Bombers back in that day and to experience that with, with Longy, he won the Norm Smith medal on that day, he had an unbelievable game. And final series. So, but looking back on it, it was a special year for sure. So, obviously, that period of time in the early
0: '90s, you had Peter Matira winning the '92 Norm, Norm Smith and the flag. The following year, um, Michael Long wins the Norm Smith. You win the Brownlow. So, there's a lot of Indigenous players really stepping up and making their mark. And I think that was what really started, from a historical point of view, I guess. The change in perception of Indigenous players. What was it like playing at that time and changing, I guess, white fella perception?
1: Yeah, you put it really well there, Tony. Um, I remember watching that game with Peter Matera carving up on the wing there, that West Coast uh, win. I think, he, you th- kick, I think he kicked five goals off the wing. That's amazing. and um, <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, and then, you know, 93 with the Brownlow, then Longy with the Norm Smith. So, you know, blackfellas were starting to really put their name, their hands up in terms of, you know, arriving on the big stage. It probably goes back to even earlier if you look at it with, with Morris um, Rowley being that, Norm Smith and a few of the other Indigenous trailblazers along the way. But I guess that came... All at once, yeah. All at once, and it was, yeah. It just felt really proud, you know, to, to know that the other Indigenous boys doing really well in the big league. I remember... You know, my early—I think it was '92—I uh, got racially abused at the MCG, and '93 and '94, so all at the MCG. So to experience that as a young fellow, light-skinned Aboriginal fella experiencing that—I never really experienced that before until they found out my background and uh, you know, and then the racial vilification code that Longi was a part of—you know—changing. So there was there was a lot of you know things happening and a lot of change and and for the good. So it was interesting times, and I'm proud to be a part of that. What was it
0: like being a light-skinned Aboriginal? This is something that a, that a lot of people struggle to to
1: comprehend when they're not. Yeah, so can you explain what that's like and the challenges? The one thing I learned as I got a little bit older, it didn't really matter the colour of your skin. You, you know who you are, you know who your mob are, and that shouldn't be an issue. So identity issues for light-skinned Aboriginal people, it shouldn't be there. And that's probably something they've had to, to face and had to challenge, but you know who you are, be proud of who you are, you know your mob, you know your family, don't let, let anyone tell you otherwise. So that's been an interesting challenge for me growing up over the years and as I've got older I've learned more and more and because I was um, closely involved in culture and we went back home and hunting as a young kid and probably didn't affect me as much but I can probably understand how some of the other lighter of skin Aboriginal people might, might have felt over the years but I just encourage them just to always find out who they are and be proud of who they are.
0: When you um, came over to the MCG and you got racially vilified, 92, 93, 94, what was that like in terms of how you dealt with it and who you lent on for support? Because that's a horrible thing to have to experience.
1: It was interesting because it was the first time it ever happened to me. I'm used to seeing it happen to my cousins growing up and going to bat for them from an early age. And, you know, I had the decision once to whether I should speak to the media or not. They were hassling me, they were like, my favourite was Reggie and I knew it was, the, you know, a couple of the journos trying to get a, a line off of me to ask me, who, who was it, you know, this. but I was just too young and too scared and I didn't know what to say and, you know, I spoke to Longy about it and he was great. He said, brother, just don't worry about it. Don't answer if you don't want to. And it was good to sort of lean on him and let him know that it did happen and he said, you know, yeah, it's happened to me, Tom too, brother. So um, <laughs> yeah. it was sort of um, good to have him to lean on during, you know, that time. But as I got a little bit older and as you get a little bit wiser and more experienced, you understand why people might do it and there are different reasons why, but um, as long as you, you know, take something from it, you know, it's okay if you don't want to make a headline of it, you just be yourself. Yeah. You be yourself and there are other people who have the ability and the confidence at that particular time to go ahead and do something about it. And I, I probably wasn't in the right mindset at that time. When you look at what, at what they did, obviously, uh, Longy
0: with the Racial Vilification Act and then Goodsy standing up for what he's done, how does that make you feel?
1: Uh, it makes me feel extremely proud of them. And you know how hard that would have been for them, like how hard in that moment and what's going through their mind and, and how nervous they would have been. I just felt really proud of them. And they, they've just done an amazing job.
0: Back to footy itself now, obviously there's a lot of talk about Port Adelaide bringing in their own team and then it finally happens and then the lure of homes obviously starts coming up. Talk us through the move back to Adelaide and specifically playing for Port
1: Adelaide. Yeah, so after playing six wonderful years with the Mighty Bombers, I grew up there, basically grew up from the age of 17 to 23. So I had amazing times there, met amazing people who I'm still friends with today have, you know, such an important bit of history making at that footy club during that time. So I feel very privileged to have been a part of that club at that time. But then there was the calling from my other club, (laughs) you know, calling me back. So (laughs) it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make to leave, you know, that great club in Essendon. And but I made the decision to go back home to to play with Adelaide. It was in my DNA and to be a part of their first ever year in the AFL. So it was, it was a tough decision. It was tough times. It was tough to get over that move back. But once I finally got over it, which was great, you know, we were able to play in that 2004 premiership. Mind you, that was ten year, well, nine years later, after well, ten years later after my first premiership. So to have been able to have played for Port Adelaide for ten years and you know, win that premiership, uh, their first ever premiership, coming from a Port Adelaide background, uh, was really special. And to play footy in my home state in South Australia was uh, was special as well. There it is.
0: Success followed you wherever you went early days, like 1990, flag, 1993, flag, brown low. Did you just think that that was what AFL footy was? It was just, oh, we just go around. We win a flag every couple of years and everything's
1: all right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. But, um, (laughs) yeah, you, you could be probably forgiven if that was the way you were thinking because, yeah, it did... Happened quite a bit. But um, yeah, 10 years in the wilderness with no success was pretty tough. Um, but it was even more sweet uh, getting one right at the end after so long. A lot of players over the years don't get an uh, opportunity to play in a grand final, let alone win one. So they're special, that's for sure. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that. Because um, you said at the start
0: that you were just kind of living in the moment in 90 and 93. Like, all this awesome stuff's happening, but you're not actually kind of stepping back and smelling the roses. Did you really step back and really cherish that one and live in the moment a bit more and
1: smell the roses? I sure did. I sure did. I certainly stepped back and slowed, tried to slow time down as much as I could to really absorb it right into the senses. So that's what I did. I didn't even have a drink that night because I I wanted to just realise, I didn't want to be... Drunk and to forget about what actually happened in a way. So, yeah, I just really absorbed it. and I was 31 years of age. I was probably just starting to go the other way. I was out of my peak, just out of my peak. And it was was really special as you get older. And when you do win a premiership later in your career, you just learn how to appreciate them so much more.
0: Obviously, Port Adelaide's had such a great history uh, with Indigenous players since they've been in the comp. And you coming back in 97 all the way through to 2006, 7? Yep, 2006. You saw some great ones come through. What was it like being
1: their mentor on the way through? <laughs> it's funny, you know, because uh, you know I came back, put out at 23. It was 97. Peter Bergwin was a, a young 17-year-old picked up and to see him blossom and have a wonderful career. And then his brother, Sean, came, I think it was two years after or three years after. And then Byron Pickett came a couple of years after that. All four of us played in a premiership together. We all had great games on the big stage, which was a um, big reason why we were able to win a grand final. So we we're really proud of that, it's amazing. What was
0: it like being able to have those four absolute stars playing together, but also being Indigenous and representing not just the Port Adelaide Footy Club, but your culture on the
1: biggest stage? That bond to be able to, to win a premiership together, to have this type of job together, and understanding our backgrounds and the disadvantages of our people, our, our mothers, our grandfathers, and those hardships we uh, that we, we get, you, you found a bit of ground there that, uh, that was special, you know. So um, we'll always have that. And just like Premiership players have that Premiership Cup and that great day in September to, to look back on and, and to cherish for life, we have that too. And then we have the Brotherhood as well. So that's really special. And uh, to top it off, Choppy
0: won the uh, Norm Smith as well.
1: And the winner is Byron Pickett. Pickett. For Byron to win that medal, uh, he had such a great game, and he he parted really really well that night. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: yeah, he might not have been he might not have been sitting back and smelling the roses. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, about five years
1: younger, six years younger than me, so uh, wasn't as mature as me.
0: <laughs> On uh, you know watching Indigenous players, obviously now there's so many great ones getting
1: around. Who are some of your favourites to watch in the modern day? Well, I mean, you can't go past Big Bud. He's just a unique specimen. You know, six foot six, and the way he plays. So he's he's one of a kind. He's uh, great to watch. Um, you know, Cyril, the, the the second effort stuff, and the the pressure, and uh, his ability to change games. And Sean Burgoyne, still going, <laughs> still going at forty eight or something, whatever he is. Nah, he's. <laughs> Sorry, brother. You said it. You <laughs> said you. it. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, lucky, lucky. We know each other pretty well, like family. So numerous others uh, along the way. Just, you know, when you see, you know, Aboriginal mob playing footy at the highest level, you just have that appreciation, you know, and you just wonder where does it really come from, you know? Like does it go, does it come back to DNA being able to have to chase a kangaroo? buddy? <laughs> 10, 10 mile or and then when you have to get on the afterburners to get close enough to throw a spear you know like does it really go back that far I don't Who know <laughs> you know maybe it does and like just having to be able to not only look ahead you got to better see what's coming you know I don't know it's, there's something in the blood you know and we, we all should be proud and, and the mothers should be proud for producing <laughs> you know indigenous players um, and, and the game of AFL wouldn't be the same without you know, our Indigenous players doing their thing because they're unique the way they play their, their brand of footy. When you look back on your career and if I ask you to put your coach's
0: hat on and you're, and you're going to talk to a very, very young Gavin Wanganine or, you know, a young football player coming through, what are the things you're going to tell them about the journey?
1: The first thing probably would be it's going to go so fast. It's going to go quicker than you'll ever know. Make the most of every single opportunity that comes your way don't ever let it slip because when you get to 33, 34 when your footy career is over or you get to 39, 43, 45, which I am now, you'll look back and think, damn, I should have done that a little bit better. I should have done that a little bit better. I mean, I just think it's really important to understand how fast it will go and if you're in that environment, make the most of it because you have an opportunity to set yourself up uh, for life. And But also, there's more to life than footy. So whether you're in the game for a short time or a long time, What's most important is that you're happy with who you are and what you're going to do with your life and it doesn't have to always be football. Just find something for yourself that's going to make you happy, whether it's family, whether it's the simple things in life, the most important thing is that you're happy. Making the most of of your opportunity
0: in that, you've got to have really good support networks around you and you've got to have really good people who who look after you and look after all the stuff that's around you. How was your experience with that?
1: Yeah, it's a good point there. I think um, if I could offer another bit of advice would be to lean on someone a person or two in terms of um, uh, a mentorship capacity uh, because you don't know it all but the more information you can get the more heads up you can get on things and the more regularly you get that stuff it's so important it could help you stay on course in what you want to achieve so find someone who can mentor you find someone who is the right sort of person who's Achieve things and, and has proof in the pudding and what they've done. If you can have someone along, some, find someone along your side for as long as possible, that'll go a long way towards you achieving your goals.
0: Footy's not everything. You've obviously lent into your art.
1: I think the AFL found out I'd been painting and asked if I'd be interested in doing a design for the Indigenous round. I wanted to have every AFL club represented on the ball because... Was that something that, that you did as you played footy Or was that something that you came to later? Yeah, I came to later. And when I finished football, I found it really hard to transition out into the real world. So art has given me an outlet and a focus, but also there are other business aspirations that I have, like I'm meeting business people, I'm I'm building relationships and networks with them, and I have a couple of projects that I'm working on myself that um, keep me occupied. I think it's really important to keep thinking and to keep... Uh, meeting people and and finding something that's going to keep you occupied post-footy because it's hard to transition out of footy into real life and that's something that's been a big challenge for me and I'm just only now in my mid-40s getting close to achieving that real full exit you know I'm not touching that bubble anymore that I was in I've let go of it and I'm about to create my own bubble so yeah that's where I'm at how excited are you for that because you
0: seem like that's filling your cup it seems you know like you seem really energetic and excited when you talk
1: about that yeah definitely because i'm excited about it because i'm i know i'm, I'm, I'm all footballers probably understand what i'm talking about here yourself transitioning into you know a media career getting out of that footy cycle completely we can be good at doing something else and give you a focus so i'm i'm getting close to that and that's that's why i'm so excited about it because it's it's been a hard transition uh, out. A lot of people don't realise as well
0: how hard it is and how hard you have to focus on your footy to be as good as you can be. And you almost do that at the detriment of everything else, don't you? Exactly. Yes,
1: you do. Because if I had my time again, I would have continued study. I would have studied while I was playing footy. I would have, I would have done a degree in something or two or three different things so that when footy finished, I could just quickly go into something else. And that's, yeah, that's what you're that was the, the danger back in, in my time and, and for players today, if they don't wrap themselves around something while they're playing footy, the dangers are that they're going to have a harder time transitioning out of footy. What's it like getting
0: you know, nominated for a list like the deadliest so far after your career and
1: how does it stack up against everything else? Uh, It makes you feel really proud. I mean, to be nominated there amongst so many other great Indigenous footballers uh, amongst that group, that's that brotherhood again that we're talking about, you know, and to, you know, see my name there, it it makes me feel really proud and I'm proud for the other guys on there as well, you know, who I've played against and had relationships with. And, you know, then there was some older guys who played in different eras, so it's great. They're still getting recognised, so I think it's a great thing. When you look back on your on your AFL career, what do you look back on with the most fondness? I'd have to say the two premierships because I think you set out to play in grand finals and win win grand finals at the MCG on that beautiful big stadium, that beautiful grass. Um, that I look back on those two days fondly, but and then I also look back on the connections that you have with those premiership players and that um, those bonds, but also. The bonds with players that you've had over the years, and especially our Indigenous players that we have real strong bonds with. um, Yeah, uh, that's what i look back on. Well, Gav, thanks for taking the time to
0: join us here to talk about The Deadliest and talk about you. Yeah, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, and well done, brother, on what you're achieving and doing. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our feed so you
0: don't miss any deadly stories. Don't forget to tune in to with for your 8pm Wednesdays
1: on NRTV and the AFL Network.